Uh, Today's Bible reading is taken from Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to Mark chapter 5, verses 43. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was, just as he was in the boat. There were other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Be quiet, be still. When the wind died down and it was completely calm, he said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They went across a lake to a region of Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by legion, by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus said, Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he had had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and all the people were amazed. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought if I could just touch his clothes I will be healed immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering 
At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and you can ask, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, and the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. They laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him, and he went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Okay, everyone. Um, as I kind of mentioned in the church announcements, today's sermon might be a bit messy, so I hope you can follow along. I think I just had a few too many thoughts that I couldn't um, like wrap into this, um, to, like, this one package. So if you have questions, um, do hit me up. And if you need me to clarify anything, just hit me up in um, horsleypark.church slash QA. All right, let me pray and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word. And we pray that today you would reveal to us um, something new in a, in a passage that we're familiar with. Please show us um, something wonderful about yourself. And we ask that seeing you more clearly would change our lives. Amen. Okay, so, so far in Mark, Jesus has proclaimed the coming of God's kingdom and taught about what it's like, mostly through parables and the miracles that we see today. You can kind of fit that in as an expression or Jesus actively bringing in the kingdom that he's talking about by driving out chaos and demons and sickness and all those sorts of things. So this kind of fits into the coming of Jesus' kingdom. So most of us or many of us are probably familiar with these particular miracles. And so you might be a bit indifferent to them because you've heard it before. But that's actually a good thing because it gives us a chance to dig one layer deeper than we went last time or last time you heard it. On the surface, the passage today is really about the power of Jesus, that he has authority over all these different things. But underneath, there's lots of different undercurrents to explore. That's one of the really amazing things about um, how God speaks to us. So he doesn't speak to us in um, a dot point scientific text that you have to read and that you memorize and you're, you're done with it. You don't have to look back on that. But he speaks to us with a lot of story and a lot of narrative, which is kind of this like ancient and like really deep inbuilt form of communication that can capture more richness and more meaning than you'd expect by the number of words. 
So we can look at the same passage at different times in our lives and we can see different things and wonderful things that we didn't see before. So if you're familiar with this passage, that's really good because you can take this now as a chance to dive deeper and find something new, find something more meaningful. So before we dive into the details of this passage, I just want to point out that these miracles are a little bit different than the miracle stories we've already seen in Mark. The other miracles so far have been pretty short and punchy, mostly just like a few lines long that describes the miracle and then moves on to the next thing that happens. But these miracles, unlike those other miracles, are a lot longer. They describe more about the situation and the people that are involved with the miracles. And they all end, this is the interesting thing, I think, they all end with a really uh, a lengthy-ish um, unexpected ending. So we're going to pay special attention to those unusual endings as our way of digging deeper and exploring the undercurrents of these really familiar stories. And then we'll see how that might help to grow our faith and our understanding of God. Okay, so our passage starts off at night time with Jesus wanting to cross to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. So they set off, but a great windstorm stirs up and the waves crash on the boat and the boat begins to sink. So they wake Jesus up and they say, Jesus, help us. We're about to die. And Jesus gets up and with a word, he calms the storm. So you're probably familiar with that story. And it shows that Jesus is really powerful, powerful enough to control nature. And that's really important to note because it's more evidence that Jesus really is the son of God. But after the miracle, Jesus and the disciples have this kind of curious dialogue from chapter 4, verse 30. Why were you so afraid, he asks the disciples. The answer is obvious. There was a massive storm. And we heard earlier in Mark, a lot of the disciples were fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. So they've got experience with the storms and with the waves. And so probably they've had their fair share of storms already on the Sea of Galilee. But this, Mark says, was a great windstorm. Or I think in the, in, I think in the NIV it says it was a furious squall. Big enough and furious enough that even experienced fishermen would fear for their lives. So why were they so afraid? Probably because they were about to die. That's the really obvious answer to Jesus' question. But then Jesus continues, have you still no faith? And that's a bit perplexing. Isn't the fact that they ran to Jesus and said, help us, isn't that faith? Isn't that what we should do? Didn't they wake up Jesus because they believed he could do something about it? If it was a cow sleeping in the stern of the ship, they wouldn't have bothered waking the cow because the cow couldn't do anything, awake or asleep, it didn't matter. But Jesus could, or they believed that Jesus could. So Jesus asked them whether, so Jesus asks them, why do you still have no faith? But it looks to me that they just showed him his, their faith by waking him up and asking him to help. So it leaves us with a really interesting question. What is faith? 
if you've been a Christian for a while, maybe you feel that that shouldn't be a question, but it is. We use the word all the time. We have faith in Jesus. We call others to repent and believe or to repent and have faith. And recently I've been saying a lot, hang on to your faith, persevere. But what is it? It's one of those hard to define things. Like you can't just define it in one line and then be done with it. Because one sentence doesn't really capture or can't really capture what faith is. So I can't do it. And you shouldn't feel bad if you can't do it. Because there's so many facets of this thing that we call faith. And there's a lot of undercurrents in this passage. But the one we're going to explore today is faith. What does this passage tell us about faith? And how does it connect to the power of Jesus? So what does it mean that the disciples had no faith? Let, the, let that question brew in your mind as we go through the rest of the passage. So at the start of chapter 5, Jesus and the disciples make it across to the other side of Galilee. They make it through the storm. And as soon as he gets off the boat, a man with an unclean spirit runs up to him. And this demon-possessed man is powerful. He could and he did regularly break apart chains and shackles that were used to try and bind him. And no one could subdue him, it says. But he was also kind of pitiable. Verse 5 says he spent night and day in the tombs and in the mountains. So it's like no one wanted to live near this guy and they didn't want this guy to live near them. So he just spent his time with the dead. And amongst the dead, he would just cry out and cut himself, presumably because he was so tormented. But this man, both powerful and pitiable, as soon as he sees Jesus, he runs up to him and falls before him and recognises Jesus' power as even greater than his own. And he begs, please don't torment us. And Jesus casts out the spirit. And we discover that it's not just one spirit possessing the man, but a legion of spirits, thousands of demons. But Jesus is still more powerful than many thousands of demons. So he casts them all out. And he allows them to go into some nearby pigs who themselves seem to go insane with these demons and they run, in, they run off into the water and drown. So Jesus controls nature and now we see he has power over the spiritual world as well. But then here's the surprising ending. Word about this spreads all around and people come, and people come to see Jesus and what's happened. And when they arrive, they see the demon-possessed man that uh, no one could subdue, no one could bind, but now he just sits calmly. And he's no longer roaming about the tombs and cutting themselves, but he's clothed and in his right mind. And they hear about what happened, and you would think they would celebrate. You think they would celebrate the release and the freedom of this man, but instead they beg Jesus to leave. He displays his power by freeing this man. He figuratively and literally brings him from the place of the dead back into life. But the people of the region don't want him and they don't want it. Maybe it's because they value their livestock more. Maybe because they fear what might happen to their other possessions. 
Um, but for whatever reason, they're afraid, it says, and they reject him. So the display of Jesus' power doesn't move them to faith, but it moves them to rejection. But with that same display of power, the man who was freed does seem to respond with faith. He tries to follow Jesus, and surprisingly, Jesus doesn't want him to follow him, but instead wants him to go home and tell his household and his friends about what he's done. So we have this really complex picture now of power and faith. Just seeing Jesus' power can bring about faith, but it can bring about rejection as well. And then if it does bring about faith, the faith doesn't always look like what you think it would. You would think Jesus would want this guy to follow him, but he actually wants him to go and tell his family. We would like to think, I think, that if only we saw a miracle, we would believe. It would actually bolster our faith. And our friends and family who don't believe, if they saw a miracle, then they would believe. But it doesn't seem to work like that, according to the Bible, according to God's word. Seeing power doesn't equal faith. It gets a bit more complex. It seems like to some people, the display of power, for whatever reason, actually drives them away and hardens their hearts. Maybe a bit like what we heard with the parable of the seeds and the soil last week. So what is faith in this section? Against, again, we don't get a full answer, but it seems like the healed man has faith and it seems like the rest of the region doesn't have faith. And then coming to the final section, we hear of two more healings by Jesus, but Mark combines them into one story. So from verse 21, Jesus is rejected from the eastern side of Galilee, and so he returns back to the western side where there's a massive crowd and gathers around him. And Mark points out one particular person in this crowd who's named Jairus, and he's one of the rulers of the synagogue. And he has a little daughter that's on the brink of death, so he was desperate. And we know Jesus was starting to make enemies in the synagogue, especially with the Pharisees, and maybe this ruler Jairus was actually aware of that happening in his own synagogue. But he loved his daughter so much that he'd disregard that and he'd throw himself at the feet of Jesus and beg him to go heal her. And Jesus was willing. On the way to heal Jairus' daughter, Mark cuts in a second but related story of healing. There's a woman who had been discharging blood for 12 years and she'd seen doctors and spent all her money on it, but Under the care of the doctor she'd seen, her suffering only became worse. It's not definitive that this is um, the type of bleeding that would make her unclean, like we read about in Leviticus, but I think it's implied because she comes up from behind Jesus and she's not really willing to speak with him directly, but she does it in secret. But she'd she'd heard about what he'd already done. And she knows that he's filled with power. So she thinks, even if I just touch his clothes, I can be healed. And she's desperate and she's living a pitiable life. No money, maybe no social interaction or connection, only pain and suffering. 
So maybe not so different from the demon-possessed man in the tombs. So she approaches him and touches him in secret. No doctors and no amount of time and no amount of money could heal her. But just touching Jesus and just on his clothes, just from behind, just for one second, could immediately heal her. As the kind of uncontainable power that came out of Jesus. And she knew it in her body. But then, unexpectedly, Jesus turns around, knowing in his body, in himself, that power had gone out of him. And he asks, who touched me? In the context of a massive crowd following him around, the disciples point out the answer to that question is everyone. Absolutely everyone has touched you. But Jesus is looking for one person. And the woman in fear tells him everything. You would think, and probably the woman would think, that he would be angry. Someone's stolen his power. He didn't give permission. She just touched and stole his power. But Jesus instead says, daughter. The same word Jairus uses to describe the daughter that he loves so much. Daughter. For 12 years you've suffered with your disease, but today your faith has made you well, which is a bit stunning. The disciples on the sea in the storm, Jesus said, had no faith. But this woman, who he now calls daughter, somehow has faith that the disciples didn't have. So what is it? What is it that the disciples missed and why were they rebuked for not having this faith? I think what this group of passages shows is that they didn't understand the fullness of the power of Jesus. So they were on the boat and they woke up Jesus in fear, but it, just can't, it can't just be that they were afraid because the woman here is afraid too. In fear, she tells him the truth but she's commended for it. So it's not the fear itself. But by this point, the disciples surely knew that he had power. They'd seen it, and so they went to wake him up. But I think their fear shows that they thought that if he didn't do something now, it would be too late. What good is your power, Jesus, when we're dead? We're perishing right now. We're in the process of dying. Don't you care? You have to act now. But this woman seems to know that Jesus can do anything. With the slightest touch of his clothes, even without his knowledge, her suffering for the past 12 years could be healed. So it's not that they feared, but it's that they feared Jesus' power would reach its limit. I think the ending of the story of Jairus confirms this. So look from verse 35. As he was healing the woman with the bleeding, a member of Jairus's house comes to tell Jairus that his daughter's dead. So incredibly sad news for him. And then he says, don't bother Jesus any further because it's a waste of time. Your daughter's dead. So the faith that Jairus had in the beginning of the story to throw himself at the feet of Jesus seems to be replaced now by fear because Jesus says, do not fear, just believe. 
And it's the same root word as have faith. Do not fear, have faith. Why? Because as the story finishes off, he has power even to bring the dead back to life. Even though Jairus' daughter is dead, he still goes to the house and he actually rebukes all these people for mourning because now Jesus is here and he's powerful. And with just the touch of his hand, he raises the girl to life. Immense power, immense joy for the father. And it shows that he's not just the healer now, but he's the giver of life. A dead person can be raised to life by his touch. So thinking again of the disciples in the storm, maybe Jesus' rebuke, why are you so afraid, why do you still have no faith, is kind of like hyperbole because they obviously have some sort of faith. They're following him around and they woke him up believing that he could do something. But he's saying, don't you know the extent of my power? You've seen me heal. You've seen me drive out demons. Don't you know yet that I'm God? If you did, you would know that you don't even have to fear death when you're with me. So the disciples panicked because they were dying. And in their minds, if they die, then what could Jesus do? But I think Jesus' rebuke is saying, even if you die, you have nothing to fear. Even if you didn't wake me up, we all drowned, you would still have nothing to fear if you knew who I was. Because I can raise you back to life. Where is your faith? Like we see with Jairus' daughter, death is nothing. In fact, he's so powerful when we come to Easter, we'll see that even if Jesus dies, Jesus himself dies, he will raise back to life because he has that much power, that much control over death. So on the surface, the passage is about Jesus' power over nature, over demons, over sickness, and even death. But the undercurrent calls us to have faith, to understand that Jesus' power is actually limitless. It's not just control over nature and just demons and just death. There is no limit. You can't imaginably conceive a limit of Jesus' power. So what it says to us is that we follow a God that has the power to do anything. It's no guarantee that as his follower, he'll do any specific thing you ask for. But look at how he used his power in today's passage. He's used it to save fearful disciples. He's used it to bring a pitiable demon-possessed man out from a life amongst the dead and restore him to his family. He's used it to restore to health a woman who's been suffering for 12 years. And he's used it to give a father back his daughter. It's no guarantee as his follower that he'll do any specific thing that we ask for, but he's powerful and he cares. And that's an important message to the world and to this church and to you, I think, and to me. Because we live in a world and we still have hearts that we'll wonder if Jesus is as powerful as he says he is. If I'm his follower, can he really save? Can he really heal? Does he care? Recently, we've been praying for the healing of different people. Um, and sadly, as we just heard earlier in church news, like that didn't get answered. And that's devastating to, to their family and to their friends. Those types of things will rock our faith. 
And especially if you're in that family, it's not easy to live through. I'm sure there's a lot more struggles going on behind the scenes that I don't know about that would be rocking your faith. But the passage today says that you follow a God that has power over literally everything. And in no circumstances do you need to fear. Even if the worst happens, even if the disciples didn't wake up Jesus and they drowned in the lake, Jesus says, you don't have anything to worry about. Why do you fear? Where is your faith? So it's not a promise that you'll get everything that you want. But it is a promise that no matter how bad things get, God is still more powerful than that thing. So it's an encouragement for us, I think, today to persevere in the struggle for faith. This like really weird thing that we still haven't pinned down and can't quite pin down. This thing that sometimes we have and sometimes it feels like we haven't. Because God is powerful enough to rescue us from anything. The worst situation, having the worst ending, is still under God's control because he's that powerful. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you've revealed to us a little bit of your power today. You've shown us that you have power over all things. Um, And we ask that you would give us faith to know and understand that. Help us not to fear when the worst of the worst things happen in our lives, but help us to continue in our faith, knowing that even if it gets worse than this, even if the worst possible thing happens, you still have power to restore and to rescue. We pray that this would give us um, a strong faith and tremendous courage in the face of fear. Amen. Now it's time for some Q&A. All right, so first question, John. Um, So referencing Luke chapter 11, verses 24 to 26, can the impure spirits repossess the man? With the pigs dying, I assume the legion of spirits will still be free to roam. Is that right? Yeah, so, yeah, demon possession is like weird and interesting and something that we don't talk about too much. Um, So I'm actually like just like on a, on a side note, I'm starting to look into the Bible's understanding of angels and demons. They're in the future, near future, there might be a topical series on like angels, demons, the spiritual world or something. So if you're keen for that, um, let me know in Q&A and I'll, I'll make that a priority. But it is really interesting. Okay, so um, Luke 11, 24 to 26. I'll, I'll just read it out. It's a bit short. Uh-huh. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through an arid, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I'll return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the final condition of the man is worse than the first. Okay, so really interesting. So it implies so this passage implies that a spirit can leave a person and come back. Um, of its own will. And so I think that's true. So this kind of says a spirit's kind of going out and coming in. Uh, I don't think that the, the spirits can leave the pigs and re-enter the man because they had to ask Jesus for permission to go into the pigs. So Jesus said, come out. And then they were like, oh, can we go into the pigs? And Jesus says, yes. And so presumably the demons are still in the pigs because that's all. that's only where Jesus permitted them to go. So I like it's not really clear from the passage, and it's not kind of focused 
on in the passage, so we don't know. But I think the pigs that ran into the water still had the demons in them. So the demons made them crazy. They ran into the water. And the demons are just in the dead pigs in the water. I don't know. Like maybe I'll find out that that's like not quite true when I look into it more. But they can't go back. Like if Jesus has said, come out of this guy, they can't just like come out and then like go back in a bit later like a naughty school kid or something. It's like Jesus has come out. You're not going back in, so you're not going back in. So I think for that particular man, it, the, the legion of demons aren't going back in. But what this passage in Luke is saying, so it's in the context of the strong man um, parable, which uh, I think Andrew, maybe Andrew preached on. So it's like uh, the strong, if, if, someone, if a strong man guards his house, you're not getting in and stealing his stuff unless a stronger man comes and gets rid of the strong man first. So that's to the first, that's the few verses before that. So I think what he's saying is that unless you, and this is maybe a bit implied, I haven't like dug into it. So I think this is implied, but it's like, unless you have a strong man in your house, you're just going to be at the whim of demons coming in and out. Um, and the strong man probably referring to the spirit, the spirit later or Jesus command for now. Um, so I think, Yes, you can repossess, but not. But that demon-possessed man specifically won't be repossessed because Jesus has already commanded them out. Um, yeah, let me know if you want a topical sermon on angels, demons, the spiritual world. I think it'll be interesting. I'll vouch for that. <laughs> All right. Hopefully that answers the question for that person. Yep. Um, second question, what does it mean that your faith has healed you? Yeah. Um, oh, if I if I ever don't answer a question, feel free to like say you didn't answer the yeah. question because um <laughs> yeah because uh, I hate it when people in Q and A's don't actually answer the question. So <laughs> if I don't if I do that, then just say you didn't answer it. Give me a more direct answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. So what does it mean your faith has healed you? Oh, so that's the that's Jesus saying to the woman with the bleeding, your faith has healed you, and that's that is a bit unusual because you would think that. Yeah, well, it's Jesus that healed her, not her faith. Mm. Uh, but in the in the context of what we we're kind of talking about with faith and with the, the disciples not having the faith to believe that Jesus could raise them even from the dead, even if they drowned in the water that night, I think what Jesus is saying there is that you understood enough of my power that you would come to me to touch me even from behind and be healed. Because you understood that, because you had that faith, like that's what's healed you. If you had small faith, you wouldn't have come and touched me. Uh, but because you had a big understanding and you had a greater faith, you did, you kind of came up and did it. So I think that's what's getting at when it says your faith has healed you. So it's not so much that the act of faith or the knowledge of faith healed her, but that it drove her to do something that would, uh, drove her to come to Jesus for the healing and just, so her faith kind of healed her in that way. Mm. I think that's what it's saying. Good okay. question. Yeah. Um, so next one. Um, so do we still have demon possession today? Yeah. Um, I can only assume yes. I haven't personally seen it. Um, I've heard. Okay. So in the in the Old Testament, I'm pretty sure there's no case of demon possession. But there's the assumption 
definitely in the, like the intertest intertestamental writing. So between the Old Testament and New Testament, there's like other Jewish writings that talk talk about demon possession and that. So I think it's the assumption that there is demon possession there. And when we come to the New Testament, I think they assume that people know about demon possession because no one describes it. It just says, this guy's got a demon. And it's like, oh, everyone knows what that is. Um, so I think it's a assumed thing in the Bible that people are people are and can be possessed. And I think it's assumed that it still goes on today. Um, and I guess we... In the New Testament, it seems really clear when someone's demon-possessed. It's not, there's never a like, oh, is he demon-possessed or just sick? Like, it's like, I feel like demon-possession is really clear when it happens. Mm. So I think it still happens today. My assumption is that it's clear if it was happening. But I guess we just don't see it much in, in our culture or maybe we glaze over it in our culture. Because definitely I've heard a lot of stories about it, but it tends to come from, so through like we'd get a lot of missionaries coming to SNBC when I was studying and then they'd share stories of what they've been going through. And if they were missionaries in countries that had natural inclinations towards understanding and seeing the spiritual side of things, there would be a lot of demon possession stories. And, and that was like a common way that people would actually come to faith. They'd be healed from a demon possession. And they'd be like, wow, that was Jesus that did it. Mm. Um, so it does happen for some reason it doesn't seem to happen in our culture or if it does happen in our culture we don't recognize it but yeah i think everything like nothing in the bible says it stopped and um so i'm, I'm just guessing that we just don't see it for some reason in cultures that aren't naturally open to the spiritual and maybe that's why, like, it warns against practicing sorcery and witchcraft or something, because maybe it opens up that connection to the spiritual. Mm. Yeah, that, that's all. That's all speculation. I, I would say yes is the, the direct answer, um, but yeah, uh, it's interesting to think about. Yeah. Um, uh, next one is so. Oh yeah, this is a cool question. Why don't we still see grand or clear miracles today as they had in Jesus' time? Yeah, good question. Uh, tough question. I, th I think, so you actually don't see many miracles in the history of the world. It just feels like, because when we read the Bible, we're reading about miracles. But the Bible specifically like writes about the miracles because they're so big. Um, so it's not like the Red Sea split all the time and God was doing random things. It's like that was a really special, massive thing, and that's why it's recorded, and that's why it keeps getting mentioned later on. And actually, for like large parts of the Bible, there's, there actually aren't any miracles. So, like in say from from like Noah to the Tower of Babel, which is I don't know, maybe like a thousand years or something. No record, no records of any miracles for a long time. In depending on what you call a miracle, there was no miracles in like that kind of the part of Genesis where Joseph goes down and the family. Um, like sells him off and all that. That's just all normal stuff. Uh, then you go into a lot of the prophets. There's not miracles in every prophet. Some of them are just calling back to faith. So actually there's big chunks of the Bible that have no miracles. Um, and miracles seem to accompany uh, God's word as like a sign of the believability of that word when it kind of breaches into new areas. So um it's like you, the, the Jews can believe God because look at the miracle of their salvation. We can believe Jesus because look at the miracles of his godship 
his godness. Um, we can believe the apostles' word because look at the miracles they did in Acts. But then, so when it breaches into new territories, that it seems to accompany, miracles seem to accompany it as a sign of believability. And then similarly, like there's demon possession in like those more spiritual, um, spiritually open countries. Uh, there's a lot of stories of crazy miracles in those countries as well, where the, the gospel kind of is going freshly or for the first time into like new countries, like in Africa, you see a lot of stories of miracles. So I think God just uses miracles to emphasize his word and, and as a sign of the truth of his word when it goes out into new territories. And so that might explain why we don't see so much in our time. They're definitely less. So it's like, you can really believe Jesus because there's miracles all over the place. Wherever he was, there's miracle, miracle, miracle. So you can really believe him. But like if everyone just did miracles, like I guess it would be a bit confusing as to who to believe. So God really like concentrates it. So I think, so again, speculation, I think that's why we don't see kind of grand miracles today because we're not meant to believe the random guy that did the miracle. We're meant to believe in Jesus. So the, the miracles are concentrated on Jesus and then we're meant to look at the eyewitness reports of those miracles and say, hey, wow, like he did all these miracles. That's a good reason to believe him. Mm. So uh, I don't know, that's, that's a bit of a rant. I think that's, that's an answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go for it. So if I got your question, Andrew, it was something like we have the same spirit that Jesus had. Are we able to perform the same miracles that he had in, in this day? Um, I, so I guess a couple of things. like It tells us that we all have the one spirit, but we have the different gifts of the spirit. So it doesn't, just because we have the same spirit as Jesus doesn't mean that we can do exactly the same things as he did through that spirit um, because the spirit expresses itself differently, gives different gifts to different people. So I don't think that um, we definitely will be able to perform those miracles. Um, and the, I think the only other time in the, in the Bible that it says that we will see miracles, like a bit like in Jesus' day, is actually in Revelation when it talks about the two prophets returning and with those two prophets returning at the end of, uh, in the last days, they're going to bring a bunch of miracles that kind of vouch for them as truly prophets of God. Um, so I think that's the only time we're guaranteed to see miracles. So if we see like two prophets, I don't know specifically what, but like two prophets, lots of miracles, that's probably the part in Revelation that we should be paying attention to. Um, but uh, we're not guaranteed to see miracles day to day because, just because we have the same spirit. That's no guarantee. Um, the only time of condensed miracles that I would expect to see is in the last days from the two prophets return or from the coming of the two prophets. Um, yeah. Good question, Andrew. Thank you. Great question. All right. Um, next one. So we've got a comment saying uh, someone is keen to learn more about the angels and demons. So yeah. it seems like it's going to be a hit. Um, how, uh, how they roam on earth today and how we should coexist with them. Do we encounter them daily and not know? Um, maybe. Like there's, I can't remember where it is. It might be Hebrews. I can't, I'm not even super clear on the quote, but something like um, we should look after 
We should be generous or hospitable to people because in the past, people have done that and have entertained angels without knowing. So someone can probably Google that. That, that should be enough to find the verse. Um, and it's not the point of the verse either, but like it, I guess it's saying that we can encounter this, this spiritual world without realising it. Um, and I assume then that that kind of is true of not just God's angels but also of demons. Um, yeah, so maybe, maybe I, I'm really, really un, unclear and, um, yeah, new to this area. So, I, like, funnily enough, we don't talk about, like, Jesus heals a ton of demon-possessed people, but we don't really, like, know anything about it except that he heals them. So I'm, I'm interested to look into it, especially into the Old Testament, to see what the picture of the spiritual world was like. Um, so, yeah. Keep um keep asking me about it if you're keen. All right. And same final question, still on demons. Are demons workers for the devil or are demons the devil? Uh yeah. So again, like this is like kind of a bit like it's not really explained anywhere, eh? Like it, it doesn't say that um doesn't give us the hierarchy clearly, as far as I know. But the the devil who's also called Satan, who's also called the serpent, who's also called the dragon, seems to be this one character um, and seems to be a particular person or a particular being that opposes God and leads other people in that opposition to God. Uh, and then demons, whatever demons are, um, seem to come under the rule of uh, the devil or Satan or actually in Mark is called Beelzebub. So um, that was one of the accusations against Jesus. By the, by the power of Beelzebub, he's casting out demons. So some people thought that Jesus was, was under the power of um, Satan and he was using that power to cast out other demons. So it does seem like Satan is kind of the top of this demon hierarchy and that the demons seem to obey him and seem to follow him in rebellion against God. Uh, one thing I will say is that angels aren't the opposite of demons. So it's not like God has angels, the devil has demons. Um, angel seems to be more a title or a function. So, uh, so it may, the word means messenger. Uh, sometimes it's translated as angel, but it's the same word as messenger or whatever. Um, and so... The, it's, it's, the word angel isn't describing a being, so there's like an angelic. The, yeah, it's not describing a, a being, but it's describing a function. So God has angels, as in he has messengers, and that might be a wide variety of people. So that, that's kind of as far as I've dug in so far. So angels isn't the opposite of demons. So it's not like angels fight demons. They're, they're, it's kind of like wrong categories. It's like saying like... Uh, oranges fight chairs or something. It's like it's like two wrong categories. They're not opposites. Mm. I don't know. There's, there's heaps to say. Um, are demons workers for the devil or are demons the devil? Yeah, demons. I would say are workers for the devil. The first the first option is the closest I think mm. to the truth. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we definitely need a topic for oh, um, okay. this, and yeah, uh, I reckon it'll be very interesting. But yeah. uh, give me a bit of time. Yeah. <laughs> Now, thanks for your questions, guys. Uh, really good ones.